The Big East Big 12 battle will continue to rage on this week, and there's a lot of other really good non-conference games to highlight coming up this week, and I'm going to cover that all as well as the most recent battles in the Big East Big 12 battle. That all will be covered here on this brand new episode of the Igloo with me, Timmy Ice. How's it going, y'all? Well, you know, first weekend of December is in the books. Had a couple in-state rivalry games that were played. One, they were able to play in the midst of COVID last year. Another one was not and was revived for this year. I'll touch on that. But later on, there's going to be four more games taking place as part of the Big East Big 12 battle this week, beginning tonight. And Pat Madden will be back joining me to preview those games as well as Cooper Watson. So I'll touch on that in just a second. Well, that will be the next segment. But let's talk about what happened over the weekend. Well, Friday night, St. John's played host to the 8th-ranked Kansas Jayhawks. You know, I had Kansas winning this game. But, you know, I genuinely believe, you know, St. John's, I thought they would put up a fight and they would keep it in, you know, single-digit territory. First half, Kansas really, you know, took it to them in the first half and led by 13 at the break. But St. John's, to their credit, and led by Julian Champagny, you know, they really cut into that deficit and got it down to as low as three with about 11 minutes to go on a Champagny three. But Kansas and Champagny also cut it down to three again, 64-61, 10 and a half minutes to go after a pair of threes, free throws. But Kansas from there, they they just rolled. And St. John's defensively, their defense just looked so porous. You know, there were just so many holes in the defense. And Kansas, being the great basketball team that they are, they, ex- they exposed that. So the Jayhawks end up rolling to a 95-75 win. Again, that St. John's defense just looked terrible in the second half. And leading the way for the Jayhawks, Christian Brown. 31 points, which is a career high. 8 rebounds and 4 assists. 10 for 16 from the floor was 2 of 4 from 3. Ochai Agbaji, 23 points, 7 boards, 9 for 16 from the floor, and 5 of 9 from 3. Remy Martin, the Arizona State transfer, 12 points, 5 assists, 5 of 7 from the field, 1 for 3 from distance. David McCormick really had his way down low, 15 points, 13 rebounds in 27 minutes on 5 of 8 shooting. So those four guys really did the bulk of the scoring, and they only got 12 points combined from the bench. Five from Jalen Wilson, four from Zach Clements, all in garbage time, and then another three, and then three points, also in garbage time for a familiar name to Big East fans, former DePaul Blue Demon Jalen Coleman lands. As for St. John's, you know, certain guys that were in the starting lineup, you know, they really didn't see the floor a lot in this game. Joel Soriano and Steph Smith being those guys. Julian Champagny led the way, 24 points, 8 rebounds, 6 of 9 from 3, and 7 for 13 from the field. The rest of St. John's, though, outside of Champagny from 3-point range was just 5 for 18. You know, it was great that St. John's made 11 3-pointers, but, you know, they got dominated on the glass. 47-29, Kansas had the rebounding edge. Posh. Had a good game, 6-for-9 from the floor, 1-for-3 from 3, and had 16 points to go with 3 assists. Montez Mathis only had 7 points and had to deal with foul trouble, only played 22 minutes. Dylan Adaiwusu ended up playing a lot of minutes off the bench. He played 25 minutes and scored 16 points, although he did foul out, but was 4-for-7 from the floor, 2-for-5 from 3, and also dished out 4 assists, which was a team high. Aaron Wheeler only had three points, and Omar Stanley had four. 
know, St. John's didn't shoot the ball bad. You know, 40% from three, 43% from the field. But Kansas was nearly 50% from the floor. So a disappointing first home game for St. John's at UBS Arena. In its history, Kansas 20-point winners. In other action in the battle, Creighton hosting unbeaten and 19th-ranked Iowa State. I mean, this game is just ugly. And Creighton played absolutely terrible basketball. They turned the ball over 15 times in the first half. And Creighton, they led by as many as seven late in the first half, but allowing Iowa State to tie the game at the half, yeah, that was that should have been a sign for it being the beginning of the end. Because once Iowa State took a 28-27 lead on a Caleb Girl 3, they really didn't look back. They never trailed again in the game. Creighton tried to inch their way back, but they just couldn't make timely plays, and Iowa State just did. And that should have been the expectation in a game where Creighton, with their inexperience, that was going to come back to bite them. So Iowa State wins 64-58. And the aforementioned Caleb Grill, coming off the bench, led the way. He was perfect from three at four for four and was five for seven from the floor. 16 points on the night. And the Cyclones shot 50% from three, seven for 14. Whereas Creighton made six, six of them on 19 attempts. Only, only one other Cyclone was in double figure, and that was the Penn State transfer Isaiah Brockington with 12, although he struggled shooting from the floor at 3 for 13. Meanwhile, George Condon had 8, as did Tyrese Hunter. But 7 off the bench each from Alias Kuntz and Trey Jackson, each with 7 points, so that's 30 bench points from Iowa State. Creighton only got eight, six from Androna Kashvili and two from Sharif Mitchell, but for Creighton, really, it was the Ryan Hawkins show, and they couldn't really get much outside of him. Hawkins had 25 points and five rebounds in 35 minutes, eight for 11 from the field, three of five from distance. Ryan Nemhard was the only other Blue Jay in double figures with 10 points. Ryan Kalkbrenner, six points and 10 rebounds. Arthur Kaluma had seven points, eight rebounds. But, I mean, Alex O'Connell struggling really did them in. And same with, you know, lackluster performances off the bench from Keyshawn Fizel and Trey Alexander. So, Iowa State comes into Omaha. They stay unbeaten with a six-point win. Creighton falls to 7-2. Sunday, and I called it regarding Xavier, Oklahoma State. This game, in terms of the crowd, was going to feel like a funeral because Oklahoma State fans weren't going to get up for this game. They don't really care. And they didn't care. And Oklahoma State was up four at the break, but Xavier played a tremendous second half. Oh, and it also helped that they brought back Zach Fremantle, who made his first appearance of the season and played 19 minutes off the bench and scored three points, which, I mean, not a great shooting night, but, I mean, the fact that he gave you something is more than you could ask for. And Xavier, they go into Stillwater, and I kind of had a feeling this would happen. I was right, and I was right on that. It felt good to be right. Xavier wins 77-71. And who had the monster night for Xavier? Mainly in the second half. I mean, he wasn't the leading scorer, but a double-double for Colby Jones. 17 points and 12 rebounds, made his own three-point attempt. It was 6 of 10 from the floor. Paul Scruggs was great, too. He led the way 19 points, 7 of 14 shooting, 1 of 5 from 3 I know is below average, but a 50% shooting night is a very good night. Nate Johnson doing what he does best, shooting the 3 ball well, 15 points, 3 for 6 from distance, and 4 for 9 from the floor. Jack Nungy was great with 8 points off the bench. Dwan Odom chipped in 6 off the bench. And Adam Kunkel, I mean, rough shooting night, 1 for 6, but he did knock down a pretty important 3. And Xavier owned the glass, out-rebounding the Cowboys 42-33. And for Oklahoma State, it was really just Avery Anderson and nobody else. Anderson had 26 points, 
Five boards and three assists. Ten of 18 from the field. Three for six from three. The only other Cowboy double figures was Bryce Williams off the bench had 11 points. And they played a lot off the bench, Oklahoma State did. They got seven from Kyle Bo- uh, Caleb Boone. Six from Woody Newton. And then two each from Tyreek Smith and Keelan Boone. Oklahoma State really struggled shooting the three. They were 7 of 26, whereas Xavier was 6 for 18. And neither team really shot the ball well. Xavier was, both teams shot 42% from the field. However, Oklahoma State, I mean, 10 for 16 from the free throw line isn't going to win you a lot of games. Whereas Xavier, I mean, 23 for 31, that's a pretty decent night from the charity stripe. So Xavier, big win for them. They're now 7 and 1. Oklahoma State down to 6 and 3. Other action on Saturday, a big rivalry matchup in the state of Wisconsin. 23rd ranked Wisconsin takes down Marquette, 89-76. And Marquette, you know, it was a pretty evenly matched game. Up until, you know, about five or you know five plus minutes into the second half when Wisconsin really blew the doors open and I mean, just something to bear in mind. I mean, Marquette, after a Justin Lewis layup, it was 41-40. to And Wisconsin really blew the doors off of Marquette after that. So, funny thing is, after Marquette made it 51-44 after a free throw, Wisconsin went on an 8-0 run to basically double the lead. And it was, you know, Marquette, credit to them. You know, they never gave up in this game, but Wisconsin just too good. And that second half run really propelled them as the Badgers beat Marquette and get revenge. 89-76. Jonathan Davis was brilliant. 25 points, a game high. 9 for 14 from the floor and made his only three-point attempt. Brad Davison, who I'm convinced will probably never graduate, 20 points, 4 boards, 4 for 8 from 3, and 6 of 12 from the field. They also got 15 huge points from Chucky Hepburn to go along with 6 assists. And and 15 also from Stephen Kroll. Marquette leading the way for them is Justin Lewis with 14 points. 11 points from Daryl Morsell. 11 off the bench from Oso Iguodaro. I mean, really... The bench drove Marquette in this game because Kirkweth was off his game. Cameron Jones was off his game, as was Tyler Kolick. But they got eight each from Joplin and Prosper and six each from Ellis and Elliott. But it was Wisconsin's firepower from the starting lineup that gives the Badgers the edge in this game and the victory. Meanwhile, in the revival of the battle for the Ocean State, Providence took down Rhode Island 66-52. Providence is up double digits at halftime. But Rhode Island, you know, they they tried as hard as they could. And they got it down to six with about nine and a half minutes to go. And actually, no, it was a six-point game with seven and a half to play. But Providence, they pull away and win 66-52. And Noah Horkler leads the way with 16 points, 7 rebounds as well, 4 for 8 from 3. So big day for Thorkler, as Providence fans now refer to him as. Al Durham with 14 points and 6 assists, 13 points, 15 rebounds, a monster game off the bench for Ed Croswell, filling in for Nate Watson, who had about foul trouble and only played 20 minutes. And they also got 6 points and 6 rebounds from Justin Minaya. You know, A.J. Reeves only had eight points, really struggled shooting the ball. I mean, he took 14 shots and only made three of them, and with just two for eight from three. As for Rhode Island, they they had a balanced scoring day. However, only one Ram in double figures, and that was the senior Jeremy Shepard with 10. They got nine from Mikel Mitchell. Seven from Ishmael Elamin, six from Ishmael Leggett, and four from Makai Mitchell. 
However, they did get eight points from Antoine Walker, the Georgetown transfer off the bench. But not really much else. And Rhode Island really struggled with the three ball. They were just two for 13 from three, whereas Providence was seven for 22. And also, the Friars out-rebounded the Rams 45-30. to So a big win for Providence. They, they are now 8-1, and one, but yet, here's what doesn't make sense to me. So in the newest AP poll, Providence didn't get a single vote. Rhode Island, Texas Tech, who Providence just beat, got two votes, even with the result. Make that make sense. But again, it's whatever. Other action Saturday, number six Villanova beat St. Joe's handily 81-52. Only a 12-point game of the half, but Villanova really blew the doors off the Hawks in the, the second half, outscoring them 47-30. Big day for Colin Gillespie. 23 points, 7-12 from the field, and 5-7 for seven from three. 16 from Justin Moore, 12 from Eric Dixon, and 10 each from Slater and Samuels. They also got 8 off the bench from Chris Archidiakono, who also had 5 rebounds and was perfect from the field. Made both of his attempts all from 3-point range. And as a whole, Villanova was 52% both from the field and from 3, although from the field they were closer to 53%. As for St. Joe's, they were led by Jordan Hall with 22 points. They got 10 each from Ajike Obina and Cameron Brown. And Taylor Funk, who was their leading scorer, didn't score in this game at all. Credit to Jay Wright and Villanova for really having a good game plan and holding Funk to nothing. So Villanova... They'll still be 6th in the country this week, and they're now 6-2. and two. 25th-ranked Seton Hall got off to a bit of a slow start against Nyack College out of Division Two, but once Seton Hall got into their offensive rhythm, it was smooth sailing from there. No pun intended, I guess. Maybe it's intended. I don't know. But the Pirates, with their biggest offensive output of the year, dropping 113 in a 46-point drubbing of the Warriors. And leading the way, I mean, the bench had a great game in this game. Matter of fact, Seno's bench combined to score 73 points. Led by 23 from Jameer Harris, who knocked down six three-pointers in this game on 10 attempts. Tyree Samuel, a monster double-double from him. 26 minutes, 22 points, and 12 boards. And Trey Jackson at 21 in 28 minutes, 3 for 5 from the, from 3 and 8 for 10 from the field to go with 7 boards and 3 assists. And then in garbage time, you know, they got 4 points from Joe Smith and first career points from the walk-on Sil Granda in 5 minutes. As for the starters, Jared Roden, 16 points and 10 boards. Miles Kale with 12. And by the way, Kale came back after missing, you know, nearly 2 weeks. So, welcome back, Miles Kale. So, 21 minutes and 12 points. Pretty good return for the, for the uh, fifth-year guy from Middletown, Delaware. Kadari Richmond, 7 points, 8 assists on the day. of An efficient day, too. 3 for 4 from the field and made his only 3-point attempt. However, you know, Alexis Yetna was limited to just 4 points. And Ike, Ike only played 8 minutes in this game. So, very limited day for Obiagu. As for Nyack, I mean, they had 15 from Joel Bailey, 14 from Jaden Dawson, and 13 from Asias Aris. So Seton Hall, 7-1 now, and they're still in the top 25. 17th-ranked UConn rolled by Grambling, 88-59, led by 18 from R.J. Cole. Although he didn't make a 3, he was 0-6, for 6, and just 4-14 for 14 from the field. I mean, but he did have 10... Free throw makes on 11 attempts, so I guess that adds up to 18. Uh, Some worth noting, by the way, for Seton Hall, you know, they shot 63% from the floor and 50% from three on the nose. So so just wanted to make that noted. Other UConn players in double figures, they had four more of them. 15 from Jordan Hawkins. 12 from Isaiah Whaley to go with eight rebounds. 
10 from Akuka Cook, starting in place of the injured Adama Sonogo. And then 10 off the bench from Jalen Gaffney. You know, they got 6 from Andre Jackson. And for Cole, by the way, 5 boards and 7 assists. You know, they also got seven points off of, 5 points off the bench Excuse me, from Samson Johnson. 9 from Tyler Polly, all from behind the arc. And 3 from Rasul Diggins. As for Grambling, they were led by Cam Kristen with 18 points. 10 from A.J. Taylor to go along with 10 rebounds. And they got 15 bench points. 8 from Eric Parrish. 5 from Prince Moss. And 2 from Zahad Munford. So UConn, they're going to move up in the poll to 15 this week. And they're now 8-1. and one. DePaul, unfortunately... They were the so they were the final unbeaten team in the Big East heading into the weekend. However, they did suffer their first defeat at the hands of Loyola Chicago. Final score 68-64 and DePaul led 37-31 at halftime. But the funny thing is, you know, Loyola Chicago really dominated the early moments of the game. They're up 23 to 8 8 minutes in. But DePaul roared back to take a 6-point lead at the break. And, you know, they closed the half on a 7-0 run. But Loyola, they just had enough in the tank to eventually come back and win 68-64. By the way, uh, you know, the end of the game, you know, that made it on bad beats with Scott Van Pelt. So if you had Loyola Chicago covering the spread, I'm really sorry for you. That's all I got to say. But for the Ramblers in the winning effort, they were led by Lucas Williamson with 15 points, 13 big points off the bench from Chris Knight, and 12 from Aher Uguak. Oh yeah, 9 points off the bench from Ryan Schweiger. So those two big bench contributions from Knight and Schweiger really helped give Loyola that boost that they needed in this game. And for DePaul, you know, they probably wouldn't have been a, would have been in a much better position when had Javon Freeman not had to deal with foul trouble and his struggle shooting the ball. 34 minutes, he did foul out, 7 points, 6 rebounds, 2 for 9 from the field, and just 1 for 5 from distance. So if you're DePaul, I would look at this as a positive. I know moral losses aren't the thing that are like, that should be, you know, people aren't fans of moral losses because like a loss is still a loss, but you got to take positives from this if you want to keep moving in the right direction. Because that was the last game of this 8-game homestand before they play their last three non-conference games on the road. And for De- for DePaul, I mean, they were still in this game despite a really off night from Freeman Liberty. Giving that boost for the Blue Demons, 19 points and 9 rebounds from David Jones, although he did take 21 shots, and which is 1 for 6 from 3. They got 11 points, 4 rebounds, and I thought I thought Angenda would have had more blocks than just the one. But Nick Ongenda had 11 points and 4 rebounds and was 4-6 from the field in 18 minutes. And he did battle foul trouble. Phil Mongeber went only with 5 points. 7 only from Brandon Johnson. But, you know, they got 8 from Jalen Terry off the bench in 31 minutes. 4 from Yorinai. And then the 3 that ended up being the spread coverer at the end from Quavizier McCauley. And, you know, DePaul really struggled shooting the ball to just 39%. Loyola was 49%. So that really gave Loyola the major boost to win this game. So for DePaul, tough way to lose your first game of the year. So Blue Demon's down to 6-1. and one, And the Ramblers are up to 7-2. and two. Meanwhile, on Sunday, other action, Georgetown... Fell below 500 yet again, losing at South Carolina, 80-67 the final. And Georgetown, they never led in this game. And South Carolina led by as many as 16. Leading the way for the Gamecocks, 14 only from Wildens Levesque. They got 11 from James Reese V. 11 off the bench from Keyshawn Bryant. You know, the South Carolina starters were really well-rounded in this game. They got 48 points from the starters, but 32 from the bench. 
And South Carolina didn't really shoot the three ball well, just four for 16 from three. But overall from the field, you know, they shot well, you know, just under 46%, whereas Georgetown shot just a hair under 33%. And they were led by Donald Carey, six for 12 from the field, four for eight from three, 20 points, seven boards, 17 from Aminu Muhammad, and eight rebounds, 13, six and six from Dante Harris. Malcolm Wilson got the start and only sc- and scored four points and grabbed five rebounds. And by the way, they were without Timothy Egoefe. However, probably the best game of the season so far for Ryan Matumbo. 16 minutes off the bench, scored eight points and grabbed six rebounds and was four for nine from the floor. Colin Holloway, after his career night earlier in the week, only had three points and five rebounds in 21 minutes. And... I mean, part of the reason Georgetown lost, I mean, in a homecoming for Caden Rice, a really off night for him, 21 minutes, and was 0 for 10 from the floor, including 0 for 8 from 3. So South Carolina up to 6-2, and 2, and again, like I said, Georgetown now under 500 again at 3-4. and 4. Meanwhile, St. John's returned to Carneseca on Sunday and bounced back from that Friday night loss to Kansas with an 83-69 win over the Fordham Rams. You know, St. John started off well, but Fordham inched their way back into the game and actually took the lead with about about halfway through the first half. But St. John's, they really got on a big run to end the first half to go up 13 at the break. And, you know, they were able to keep Fordham at a distance the rest of the way to win 83-69. Posh Alexander, great game for him. 11 for 16 from the field, four boards, five assists to go with 23 points, which was a game high. They got 16 from Montez Mathis and 16 also from Julian Champagny. And some interesting changes to the lineup that Mike Anderson made. Dylan Adaibusu got the start and had 11 points and 11 assists in 33 minutes, going 4 for 7 from the floor, 2 for 4 from 3. And also getting the start was Asaya Nyiwe, who had 7 points and 8 rebounds in 25 minutes and also knocked down a 3-pointer in his only attempt, it was 3-for-5 from the floor. And then off the bench, you know, Steph Smith, Joel Soriano, all under 10 minutes of action. But they each scored four points. So interesting moves made by Mike Anderson, but hey, they paid off, and who knows if they're going to pay off as we go along. As for the Rams, they were led by Chuba Ohams with 20 You know, they got 16 from Darius Quisenberry and 13 from Antonio Day Jr. Eight points from Antrell Charlton and 12 combined combined points off the bench. And St. John's incredible shooting the ball at 55.7%. Although three-point-wise, they weren't great, just 5 of 15, whereas Fordham was 10 for 32, which is... Percentage-wise, worse than St. John's, but I mean, they were plus 15 shooting the three ball. So St. John's, had they made more threes, you know, they really could have run Fordham right out of the building. So, coming up next, you got four more games on the Big East Big 12 battle coming up this week. And as as I mentioned before, Pat Madden, Colin Watson, they'll join me to break down Those four games coming up tomorrow through Thursday, which include a pretty good matchup in Morgantown between UConn and West Virginia, and a top 25 showdown in Newark Thursday night between number 7 Texas and number 23 Seton Hall. That's coming up next here on the Igloo, so don't go anywhere. Week 2 of the Big East Big 12 battle is set to go here on this brand new edition of the Igloo. So far, we're four games in. We got four more coming up just over the next few days. Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, got four games scheduled. Butler in action on Tuesday. Got UConn and Marquette on the road Wednesday. And then, of course, a big matchup, Seton Hall at home on Thursday, taking on a top 10 opponent. And joining me um, for this preview here on this new episode of the Igloo, of course, bringing back Pat Madden from the Big Big East blog. And also joining me, he writes for fan-sided and busting brackets and he is a certified writer for the USWBA or BWA I I almost uh, got uh, and they got those uh, they got that acronym messed up but uh Cooper Watson will be is joining us as well so gentlemen 
Welcome back, and um, let's talk some Big East Big 12, shall we? Let's do it. Thanks for having me. Ready when you are. So, Tuesday night, Butler visiting Norman to take on Oklahoma. Um, I, I, I feel like Oklahoma could use this distraction from the whole Lincoln-Riley thing, but that's a discussion for another <laughs> time. Uh, but taking on this Butler team, Butler coming off a pretty ugly win against D2 Saginaw Valley State. Uh, they're five and three right now and going up against this Oklahoma team who, by the way, just knocked off Florida recently, who Florida was number 14 in the most recent poll. You know, this looks like a, a bad storm for Butler and it doesn't look like things are going to go well down in Norman Cooper, your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, it, it's Oklahoma. Also, I mean, a good win against Florida. Also, before that, a true road win against UCF, which looks very good. So back-to-back really impressive wins for them. Um, Butler just can't score. I mean, it's been beaten into the ground over and over, but it's the truth. They turn the ball over every time down. Um, an interesting fact, also, they Butler hasn't played a Division One team in two weeks, or it will have been two weeks. They played Chaminade in their last game at Maui. Um, and then they played Saginaw Valley State, who they struggled with a week ago or a couple days ago. Um, before that, they lost three in a row to D1 teams, quality D1 teams similar to Oklahoma. I, it's – I don't know. It's hard. It would be hard to pick Butler here. The spread – I don't even know what the spread's going to be. Um, I would assume the highest of any of these Big 12 Big East matchups, so – that sounds about right. Pat, for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote about Butler right after they got back from the trip to Vegas, and there's just all sorts of bad things going. I mean, injuries, Bryce Inzi's been hurt, a uh, couple of other guys, Chuck Harris uh, has a bad foot, a couple of other guys been out, Miles Tate hasn't come back from knee surgery yet, and then they've had some people just playing really, you know, lousy. Well, Bryce Golden has not been what he looked like at the end of last season. So they're walking into a matchup against what's going to be a well-coached Oklahoma team. It's Porter Moser's first uh, season at Oklahoma. He's got things off to a pretty good start. They have two Groves brothers from Eastern Washington who gave Kansas all sorts of issues in the first round. And then they have Jordan Goldwire, who's a transfer from Duke. So you got the home court. You have the better talent and you have the one team that's heading in the right direction against the one team heading in the wrong direction. So it, it just all just is all stacked up and it all stacked up bad against Butler. So, I mean, I think we're all in agreement here. OU wins this game, but for Butler to even have a chance in this game, you know, what do they have to do in order to, you know, you know, put up a fight in this game. And, you know, like, I believe if I'm not mistaken, this is their first true road game of the season. I'd say slow the pace down. Uh, you got to get something from some big guys like uh, Ty Grossi, the transfer from Eastern Michigan. You got to get something from uh, Miles Wilmoth. You got to get something from the big guys to at least hold off the Groves brothers. Uh, and then you got to get Jar Bolden to get really hot. And maybe Chuck, if Chuck Harris is healthy, Chuck Harris can put some points on the board. So slow the game down hit some threes, try to frustrate the big guys for Oklahoma. And maybe if all those things come together, uh, you know, Butler could, you know, keep this game in single digits, but they have need too many things to go well to keep this close. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the typical long shot. They, they have to hit a bunch of threes. It's the one thing Butler does pretty well. Um, I mean, looking at their Ken Palm page, 351st in turnover percentage, 258th in two-point percentage, which are pretty awful. Uh, but three-point percentage, they're 91st, which considering how bad the offense has been is pretty good. So maybe a little hope there that they can get hot, um, hit some threes. Uh, Oklahoma, Patrick misses it. Uh, Goldwire has been awesome. I mean, the Gross Brothers – get uh, the attention because they're more scores, but Goldwire tweeted it out the other day. Um, he's plus 44.7 points per 100 when he's on the court, which is four time anyone else's 
uh, on off sort of splits. And uh, he, he's just been awesome. I mean, he's a veteran, it's super senior season defender. He does everything right. He's not a volume scorer, but pretty much everything else that you want from a guard, he does. So shout out to Jordan Goldwire there. Yeah, he's a guy that doesn't really get a lot of love. It didn't get that kind of love at Duke. And for him to, you know, find that success somewhere else at a place like Oklahoma under the radar too, you know, I mean, you know, more power to him. But Sermo's a tight player. Yeah, that's, for that's, sure. a, that's a great way of putting it. Now, Wednesday night, you got a pair of games over on the Deuce, ESPN2, 7 o'clock. Uh, so, by the way, that Butler OU game, I think it's a 9 o'clock tip on e- also on ESPN2, but that's on Tuesday. Now, back to Wednesday. UConn will still be ranked, um, and they'll visit West Virginia. And for UConn, I mean, if Adama Sanogo is healthy, unfortunately he's not. He, you know, suffered an abdominal injury that's going to sideline him for – you know, multiple weeks, potentially uh, Tyrese Martin suffered a wrist injury as well. Um, so, I mean, if those two guys are healthy, I mean, obviously I would lean more UConn, but given that, and of course this game's in Morgantown, you know, th- things might be leaning more advantage to the Mountaineers. Pat, I'll start with you on that. Your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought that West Virginia was going to give them trouble simply because they were the home team. Uh, any, you know, this, despite the depth, despite the size of Connecticut, I thought that, you know, West Virginia was going to give them some issues. Now, I know West Virginia struggled down in uh, South Carolina when they played Marquette uh, a couple of weeks ago. But again, they, they now have the home court and now they're going to be dealing with two fewer elite Huskies in Martin and Sonogo who are not going to be part of the matchup. That doesn't mean that Connecticut doesn't still have some guys who can do things. Isaiah Whaley, of course, who's the def- who was one of the best defensive big men in the in the country. Uh, a cook, a cook is going to be able to have an impact in this game because he's going to take some minutes from Sonogo. Uh, and then maybe uh, a guy who hasn't played much yet, but Connecticut fans are high on a guy named Samson Johnson, a six ten guy. He's a freshman, uh, but he's someone who could also maybe pick up the slack a little bit. Uh, but again, I think the home court's going to be a little bit too much for Connecticut to handle on Wednesday night. Yeah, I mean, you know, the injuries. I'm expecting Martin and Snogo to be out at least two weeks. Um, obviously, not going to play in this game. West Virginia is interesting. It they don't. It's not an old school press Virginia system. They're not playing that fast, that up tempo. But they are third in the country and turnover, uh, forced turnover rate. They force a lot of turnovers. They make it kind of crazy, hectic, especially at home. It's just a tough environment. You got to be really disciplined. Um, it's tough without two of your, you know, two of your three best players to stick in a game like that. Um, (laughs) Huggins versus Hurley is just an all time. Uh, it's just the code, the, the, it's just going to be so much fun to watch both of them. Like I was watching that UConn Auburn game and just seeing, I mean, it obviously went into triple OT or whatever, but seeing Hurley and Pearl on the sidelines was so much fun. So I'm excited for this game. I think West Virginia sneaks it out at home. It'll be a good win for them. Looking back, if they win it, um, even without Sonogo and Martin, I mean, it's still going to be a win over UConn um, if they win. But yeah, I like West Virginia. I yeah, think they need to get kind of crazy. So, so yeah, I mean, I mean I'm going to take the Mountaineers too. I mean, again, healthy Martin and Sonogo, I'd be more inclined to take the Huskies. Uh, but obviously, you know, if there's any guy to watch for for West Virginia, you know, in terms of the havoc they create, it's only appropriate that they have a guy named Taz on their squad uh, yeah. that elicits that havoc. And uh, Taz Sherman, who's their leading scorer, um, I'm expecting him to have a good night. But if anyone's going to feast, it's going to be the big guys. You know, I'm the only, and obviously, it's, the wrench is a tough guy to deal with um, Isaiah Whaley. I mean, they don't call him the wrench for nothing. He, he makes it very hard uh, to score for a six, nine guy. Never seen the guy block shots like he does. So, I mean, if Whaley can stifle their post to the extent that he can potentially, you know, that might swing things the other way, but I think West Virginia, 
you know, with those two, with those two injuries, the combination of the two for UConn, uh, I'm going to take the Mountaineers. I think, you know, shockingly, you know, we're all in agreement here on the first two, uh, but next one, nine o'clock that night, Marquette visiting Kansas state in the little apple, Manhattan, uh, this K state team, you know, an interesting group to say the least. I know that they nearly beat Illinois not too long ago. Uh, you know, putting up quite a fight. Uh, but obviously this Kansas state team is a far cry from where they were, you know, just a few years ago when they had Dean Wade and were a top four seed in the NCAA tournament and the year before when they went all the way to the elite eight as a nine seed uh, Marquette, on the other hand, you know, they've had a pretty good start, you know, the second straight road game they're at Wisconsin uh, before that. So going into the little apple, and by the way, two years ago, they met in the exact same circumstances in the Big East Big 12 battle, which Marquette won. And the year before, against that case 18, that was a four seed, they upset the Wildcats at Pfizer Forum. Uh, so in the recent years, Marquette's had their number. Does that trend continue? Cooper, I'll start with you. Um, yeah, I mean, I like, I like Marquette here, which is probably going to backfire on me. I, Kansas State is a team that always flies under the radar. I, Marquette was hanging in, they're playing Wisconsin as we're recording this. They were hanging in at most of the game. Wisconsin's pulled away. Now Wisconsin's up 16, it looks like, but they were hanging in it for most of the game. Um, I don't know. I like, I just like, I like Shaka's energy. I, um, Morcel has been awesome. I mean, he scored 20 points. I don't think he ever had a 20 point game at Maryland and Marquette. He's had 20 points in almost every game. So yeah, yeah. I think he started off with like 20 plus in like the first four or five games. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they play really fast. Um, which Kansas State does not. That's going to be interesting. It typically the slower tempo wins out. It's easier to slow a game down than it is to speed one up, which is why Virginia is able to always play slow games. Um, but if you can turn the other team over, you can speed it up. I think Marquette can do that. I think they've got better. Um, they're a slightly better shooting team. Kansas State the numbers are pretty good, but I think when you watch them play, um, I don't know. They just don't have a lot of guys that can create their own, sh own shot guys that I trust shot clock, run it down to go get a bucket. I think Marquette has more of that. Pat for you. I'll tell you one thing. If I'm Bruce Weber, Kansas state, I'm making some notes as to the game film and that, that the game we're watching right now about how do I get my team into a half court? How do I run, run the shot clock? Yeah. How do I find open shots for, you know, a guy like McGurl who has been there for two or three years and is prop is, is coming into their season. One of their better players. How do I find ways to work against what Marquette offers? I mean, the, the impression I'm getting watching this game is that Wisconsin has found whatever open shot they seem to want here in the second half. So, you know, this is something that Kansas State can work with in terms of offsetting some of the stuff that Cooper was just talking about, about some of the advantages that Marquette has. You know, Marquette's going to try to press. Marquette's going to try to force a lot of turnovers. Marquette's going to try to score a lot of points off of their turnovers. But, I mean, if you can play as disciplined as this Wisconsin team has played this afternoon, and now, again, they don't have the – Wisconsin's a ranked team. And Wisconsin's expected to be in the top five or six in the Big Ten, as opposed to Kansas State, who's expected to be in the bottom two of the Big 12. So, you know, there's going to be a talent difference. But strategy-wise, you know, Kansas State has to make the game slow and has to make the game a little bit ugly. Uh, and if they're able to do that, they could frustrate Marquette uh, at home on Wednesday night. And, you know, obviously, I mean, I like the history, not really history, the recent history of Marquette, you know, winning in back-to-back -back years, um, including one of the biggest Big 12 battles just a couple of years ago. Um, so I'm going to pick Marquette. I think K-State will keep it tight. I know Bruce Weber is going to make sure that, you know, he wants to win this one, because given that he had lost two straight to these guys. Uh, but I think Marquette, you know, between the combination of Marcel and, 
uh, you know, Tyler Kolick, you know, can he's got to get it going because he's struggled in the last few games. Uh, but I think if there's that, obviously the most important guy in, ter- in terms of, you know, guy who could do it both down low and on the perimeter, Justin Lewis got to continue how well he's gotten off to in terms of the star he has in his sophomore campaign. Uh, so I think the combination of Morcel and Lewis, I think, will be enough to give Marquette a tight road win. Uh, but last but not least, a big main event on Thursday. I mean, it's not really a quote-unquote main event slot but because it's a 6.30 game on a Thursday night. But you got Texas visiting Seton Hall. Th- this Texas team was top five in the country preseason. They're still top ten right now. You know, the guys they brought in, I mean, they really loaded up, and obviously they brought in Chris Beard from Texas Tech. Uh, but the Seton Hall team at Prudential Center, you know, they really need a big time home win um, in this Big East Big 12 battle. You know, last year they didn't participate in it due to COVID, but they were supposed to play Baylor, the guy, the team that won eventually won the championship. And but the year before they went to Iowa State and lost in a game where Mamu, you know, fractured his wrist and was out until you know late January. Uh, so I think Seton Hall, knowing that they were not in this thing last year, I think they really, really want a win under their belt in this Big East Big 12 battle. And Texas looking for the same thing. They've lost back-to-back years in this series. Uh, so which team do you think is in the best position to get their first Big East Big 12 battle win? Uh, Pat, I will start with you this time. Uh, you know, it's going to be a, it's going to be a great atmosphere at the Prudential Center. If it's anything like uh, the Michigan State. Seton Hall game two years ago in the Gavit games. Uh, you know, you're gonna have a you're gonna have a pretty packed house. First time Seton Hall's had a packed house uh since in about 21 months since uh senior night in 2020. So, you know, Texas, of course, you know, great talent. They're trying to figure things out. Uh you got a guy Seton Hall fans are fam- are, you know, unfortunately familiar with in Christian Bishop, the transfer from uh, Creighton. You've got Marcus Carr, who's probably going to be a first round NBA draft pick uh, when and if he decides he's going to get into the draft. Uh, so they've got a lot of things to play with. One thing Texas does not have is quality size down low. And that's when you talk about, you know, how much impact an Ike Obiago is going to have, how much impact is an Alex Yetna going to have, how much impact is a Tyree Samuel going to have. So that's one thing Texas that the guy they're, they were banking on going into the season is another transfer, a guy, Trey Mitchell from UMass, a 6'11 guy who they thought was going to be a big factor on the inside uh, and really hasn't gotten, nobody on Texas has gotten off to a great start yet. But again, the, the, the beard is getting them more ready for the big March run. But this game is the type of game they're going to want to show something because, again, you know, they, they were... They, they didn't really show up in that game Thanksgiving weekend against Gonzaga. So, I, no, that was before Thanksgiving. I'm sorry. The first week of the season they played Gonzaga, didn't really put out a good effort. So this is the second time in, they, they get, like, a national audience in a game against another ranked opponent. And this is where, you know, Texas, you know, this is something where you don't want to go into Big 12 play and not have a quality win. So, you know, there's going to be some stuff that Texas is going to have to work on. But if anybody can get a team motivated for a game like this, it's Chris Beard. Yeah, the size is the big thing. I mean, they came out against Gonzaga. They put up a 6-6 wing, Timmy Allen, on on Drew Timmy. I mean, that just didn't work. Gonzaga said they were going to go to the post. Every time they never double teamed, it didn't work. Obviously, Seton Hall doesn't have Drew Timmy, but they do have a lot of size which is what we've seen Texas struggle uh, with. It's hard to get a read on Texas. They haven't played really anybody other than Gonzaga, and they don't really play anybody. They play Stanford in a couple weeks, but they'll, they should beat Stanford. This is really their last chance for a quality non-conference win. Um, I think they know that. They understand that. I do like them to win this game. The Marcus Carr thing, he's not been good. He's just not been good. Um, he's shooting horribly from the field. He, it seems like a situation where it's a guy from a team that's not very good, that is used to being relied on to shoot 
every time down. And now he's on Texas. And I don't think he's fully grasped that he has six or seven other really good players who he can trust to take shots. Timmy Allen has been good offensively. I think he's been the bright spot for them. He is not a great shooter, but he's shooting well from the field. Good mid-range guy. Good going to the hole. Um, I like Texas to, to squeak it out. I like him defensively still, even with the lack of size. I, Trey Mitchell has been good. Pat mentioned Trey Mitchell. He's been, he hasn't played a lot. He's come off the bench. He's playing less than 20 minutes per game, but I think he's second on the team in scoring. Um, I guess defensively, Beard, I mean, that's typically what it comes down to with Beard is, is the defense. So if you're second on the team in scoring and still coming off the bench, it's got to be a defensive issue there. But I, I think Trey Mitchell's been good. One last note, I would like to see Texas sort of go as big as they can go in this and maybe even move Timmy Allen to the three. He's been starting at the four. Um, I would like to see a Timmy Allen, Bishop, Trey Mitchell lineup, which gives them a little size. You know, they don't have a true center. They don't have any center. But, yeah. Well, Mitchell was we, supposed to be the center. He's not really the center, though. He's more – he's a forward. He's a power forward, and he's a stretch forward at that. I mean, he shoots a lot of threes. I Defensively, they just don't have anybody inside, which is concerning if they get another team like Gonzaga. I mean, if they get – Even Kansas. Oh, I mean, Kansas. you saw what McCormick obviously, did last night. Obviously. McCormick – I mean, yeah. we don't want to get into a big discussion about Kansas versus Texas right now, but, you know, you know, but it does have some application to this game because, you know, if, if, if you, if guys like Yetna and Samuel can do what they want to do offen- offensively against, you know, against, you know, not much size, that's going to cause a lot of problems for Texas. Now I will say in defense of Texas, watching Christian Bishop a lot back in Creighton, you know, he was dependent on to play a lot of defensive five. You know, yeah. he's playing with guys like Balik and Alexander and Zegarowski and, you know, Denzel Mahomes. The guys he played with Creighton when he was on the court, he was playing the five defensively. And he did a pretty good job shutting down taller guys uh, for, for some of the op- – like he could, he could slow down guys like Jeremiah Robinson Earl and Sadiq Bey and, you know, some of the – big and did a pretty good job against Andrew Sandro Mamakelejvili a few times. So I think if he can show, if he if he can translate what he used to do in the Big East to a game like this on Thursday night, he might be able to contain Samuel and Yetna. Uh, and then Texas will just have to find somebody, maybe Mitchell, you know, maybe somebody else who can, you know, sort of contain what else is going on uh, on the inside. And then, you know, Seton Hall's got to figure out how to stop you know, some of those guys. You got Connor Ramey for Texas. You mentioned Carr. You mentioned Allen. So Seton Hall's got to do a pretty good job in the perimeter. Now, the good news is that Miles Kale uh, will be back for this game. He was out for like a week and a half with a groin injury, but he played a few minutes in their little uh, game with Nyack this afternoon. So he should be ready. He should be back ready to go for this game. And, you know, and Miles Kale is sort of, uh, their leader on the court, fifth-year senior, has been in a lot of big games like this, and he's going to have to play some pretty good defense to slow Texas down on Thursday night. Yeah, and, you know, honest, honest to God, I mean, one guy that we didn't – I mean, there are a lot of guys. I mean, the fact that Jared Roden was really brought up, I mean, he's going to have to have that alpha male-type performance where he's, you know, scoring the ball, he's rebounding, he's – you know, I mean, they don't call him body for nothing because he's – built like a greek god so obviously when you face a team like texas you gotta you gotta man up and deal with these big boys and you know i'm expecting him to do that uh kadari richmond's got to be big in this game you know you want him to really be smart with the ball you know he's gonna get his assists he his pass first mentality that's something i like about him a lot but you know sometimes that'll be you know as much as good much good as you can get from that you, you, there's a lot of bad that can come from that too because they'll make some careless turnovers when, you know, maybe he should just put up a shot rather than dish it out. So, I mean, and then obviously the third big name I'm worried about, Ike Obiagu. I mean, this is a guy who, because of this undersized Texas team, you know, he could scare the living bejesus out of some of these guys. Even a guy like Mitchell, who's 6'11", 
I'll tell you, I'll tell you what though. I mean, Bishop ain't scared of him. I mean, he's not afraid to take it to the ten because of the familiarity um, going up against him and even Roe Gill before that. So um, if Obiagu can step up his game like, like he did a couple years ago against Maryland um, and another strange Thursday night game in non-conference play a couple years ago, you know, Seton Hall's got a very good chance, but I don't know why. I just think at the end of the day, oh man, I'm conflicted because I want, trust me, and my, my heart's telling me Seton Hall's going to get this big win, but you know, at the end of the day, I think Texas just has just a little bit too much. But I'm telling you right now, I guarantee there's going to be a one possession game. But uh, it's like Charles Barkley, guarantee <laughs> that one possession game. I'm booking it right now between the Longhorns and the Hall. I think something that favors Texas. I agree. I think Seton Hall might even be favored in this. It could be a pick them. But um, one thing that favors Texas probably is that they play they play slow they play really slow and Seton Hall likes to play pretty fast like I mentioned already it typically favors the slower team they're able to sort of make it their game they're really good Texas is really good uh, in the half court offensively Seton Hall likes to get out and run. They score a lot of their buckets that way. It's going to be interesting. They're going to have to score in the half court. Like you mentioned, uh, Roden's going to have to make some shots. I mean, he's going to have to have a big-time game um, and bail them out a couple times in key moments probably for them to get over the hump. I think he can do it, but at the end of the day, I'm with you. I like Texas. Pat, for you? I think Texas in a close one. I think, again, you know, if – if you're a team that's got national championship aspirations like Texas has, this is not the type of game because, you know, again, what's going to happen is people are going to question them if they go into big 12 play with the losses to Gonzaga and Seton Hall. Now, again, they're going to do very well in the big 12, but you know, this is the type of game where, you know, Beard's going to tell them you, I want, we need this, you know, even though it's December, even though they still have all the big 12 play coming up, uh, they got, I, they're playing somebody, they, 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 who are they, I think they're playing Tennessee. It's Tennessee. I misspoke earlier when I said it was their last chance. They no, do no, no, play yeah. Tennessee in January, it's, yeah. Right, It's a little yeah. weird because you don't see a lot of non-conference games. They had that big 12 SEC challenge in yeah. January. So I'm just mentioning, you know, but when you get to January, you're basically on conference mode. So, you know, again, they'll be all right. You know, that they'll be all right in Big 12 play. But again, if you're looking at, you know, are people going to respect them going into the tournament? Uh, you know, they, they, you know, you got to win some big games before you get to the tournament. And this is a big game. Ranked opponent on the road. You know, so, you know, this is where, you know, I think Texas is going to find a way to step up. But Seton Hall winning this game wouldn't surprise me either. You know, again, for all the stuff we talked about. They had strategical advantages over Texas in terms of size, in terms of maybe be able to force some turnovers. I mean, Marcus Carr has to play really great in this game uh, for Texas to get a win. Carr's got that potential, but, you know, again, he's got to show it. So we'll see how that works. Yeah, and I, so one last thing before we wrap this up. Now, one guy, I'm, I'm going to give him the, um, you know, the, who's going to be the X factor in this game. I'm going to give that to Jameer Harris. Um Actually, not a combination of the two, Harris and Aiken. Well, Harris, we knew was going to be an impact guy because, you know, in the offseason, people were saying he's the best marksman Seton Hall has had since, you know, maybe Isaiah Whitehead. I mean, it's weird that Harris is wearing number 15 like Isaiah. And then for Aiken, I mean, he missed Saturday's game against Nack, which to me is not a big deal, but he had stayed healthy. And when he's been healthy, He's looked pretty damn good this year. You know, knocked down some big free throws in the win at Michigan. Uh, granted, because of how Michigan's been, it doesn't really mean that much anymore um, as of right now. But if Aiken can show what we've seen of him before, you know, up until today where he didn't play, you know, if he can make those contributions, you know, that can get Seat Hall over the hump. But I think in the end, um, you know, as much as I, as a Seton Hall guy, I want to put horns down. Um, but you know, my heart is telling me, my heart's telling me Seton Hall, but my brain is just telling me Texas. So, um, th- so that's a wrap for this segment. I mean, you know, that's after this, you know, after Thursday, 
We'll be eight down, two to go. Uh, but gentlemen, you know, it was really great breaking this all down. You know, you know, I, I know it's not the sexiest slate of games. Texas and all being the best, clearly out of the four. Uh, but you know, it's always fun when we get these non-conference series, especially between these two conferences. So, uh, gentlemen, thank you for the time. And you know, we, you know, as we talked about, you know, hopefully these games will deliver and you know, be as tight as that first round that we saw at least between Texas Tech and Providence. Yeah, absolutely. I'm ex- I'm excited for it. I'm excited for Marquette, Kansas State. I mean, that's going to be a pretty ugly game, probably, but I'm I'm excited for it. So, Pap, uh, any last? Yeah, no. Thoughts? I think I think Connecticut shows up on what I don't know if they win, but Connecticut's going to show up, and it's going to be interesting to see how they deal with not having a couple of their big stars. Gen- so, gentlemen, thank you again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So to wrap this episode up, continuing on, you've heard some picks from the Big East Big 12 battle. Again, we got four games going on. Again, tonight, Butler at Oklahoma. As you heard, I got the Sooners. UConn, West Virginia in a narrow one. I'll take the Mountaineers. And I'm going to take Marquette winning in Manhattan against K-State. And as much as I want Seton Hall to win, my heart wants Seton Hall but my mind's telling me Texas, so I'm going to pick the Longhorns there. But let's move on with the rest of these picks. So, Tuesday night, doubleheader on FS1. Vermont, Providence, Vermont 6-3. and three. They ain't bad. Their only three defeats so far this year came at Maryland. And then in the Gulf Coast Showcase against Oakland. And then they lost at UNC Greensboro. I mean, Providence, the way they're playing right now, I, I I really like the Friars to keep this momentum going. And with the way they're tr- projected, they're probably going to enter conference play 10-1, and one, which was two games better than I thought they would be at the beginning of the season. So give me the Providence Friars winning at home over the Catamounts of Vermont. But, I, I mean, six-and-a-half point line, I'm shocked it's that low, to be honest with you. But I, I'm going to take the Friars, and I think I got them covering. DePaul hosting Duquesne. Actually, no. So, this is the last game of the homestand. Not the Loyola-Chicago game. Because after that, then their three-game road trip starts. Where they play at Louisville, at UIC, and at Northwestern. But in this game against Duquesne, DePaul's 8.5 point favorite. I'm going to take the Blue Demons winning this one. Do I think they're going to cover? I think so. And by the way, Oklahoma's a 10.5-point favorite over Butler. I think they barely cover. And then um, ESPN 9 Eastern, the nightcap of the annual Jimmy V Classic at Madison Square Garden, 6th-ranked Villanova taking on Syracuse in a classic Big East rivalry. You know, they had the home-and-home back in 2013 and 2014 with the home team winning each time, SU winning at the Dome, Villanova winning at Wells Fargo. But now we're on a neutral court at Madison Square Garden. Villanova's breaking off those throwback uniforms, which I think are just hideous. I personally don't know why they keep using them. I mean, I get it. It's a 1971 tribute. I get it. But, I mean, they're just ugly. They are ugly. But Villanova against Syracuse. Now, I know SU, they're they're coming off a big win at Florida State on Saturday. But Villanova's just too good. And I'm just being real. I think Villanova wins this game by double digits. I know, And they're an eight-point favorite, but I'm going to take Nova covering. Wednesday night, Xavier playing host to Ball State in their last tune-up before the annual Crosstown shootout against Cincinnati. I mean, this is... You don't want to underestimate or overlook Ball State because you're worried about playing your crosstown rivals Saturday night. This Ball State team is 3-4. and four. I got Xavier winning pretty handily. I already went over UConn-West Virginia. I already went over Marquette-Kansas State. Georgetown hosting UMBC. You know, UMBC's 5-3. and three. They ain't bad. You know, their only losses, they lost to UMass on the road. They lost at Longwood by 27. 
And they also, they, by the way, they won at Pitt just a week and a half ago in their most recent game. They lost at Delaware. This UMBC team, I'm shocked. According to the BPI, Georgetown is narrowly favored. UMBC is going to put up a fight, but I think Georgetown, I, I, I'll have enough confidence in them to pull it out. But it's not going to be pretty. I think Georgetown wins narrowly. All right, so I went over Texas Seton Hall. Now, lastly, Monmouth St. John's. This Monmouth team is 7-1. and one. They're legitimately one of the best mid-majors in the country. Their only loss came at Charlotte in their opener, and they've rattled off seven straight wins since, which included a win beating Towson, Lehigh, St. Joe's, Princeton. They also won at Cincinnati, and then they just won their first two conference games of the season in a road trip to Western New York where they beat Niagara and Canisius. Now, St. John's is pretty heavily favored according to the BPI, but, and I guarantee you, when Monmouth walks in to Karnaseka Arena, and I guarantee this, Shavar Reynolds, the former Seton Hall walk-on who became a scholarship player and beat St. John's on a three-pointer at the buzzer back in December of 2018, he might receive the loudest boos in that building in a long time. Because St. John's fans, and I've seen it on Twitter, and it's been three years, like, at this point, y'all just need to let it go because it's it's detract it's a detractor to your own personal health, mentally and physically. St. John's fans, you need to let go of this quote-unquote Seton Hall screw job. I'm not, I'm not even saying this is a Seton Hall fan. Let it go. But knowing these St. John's fans being as vindictive as they are, they're going to boo Shavar Reynolds out of the building because of that. And you know what? I wouldn't be shocked if Shavar and the rest of his guys used that as fuel. They went to Cincinnati and beat a good Cincy team. And St. John's has had their difficulties against lesser opponents. They needed overtime to beat NJIT. They barely got by St. Francis Brooklyn. I think St. John's narrowly wins, but do not be surprised if Monmouth takes it. Because I think this might be a bit of a punishment for St. John's not scheduling a tougher slate in their non-conference schedule. So St. John's, I barely got you winning, but again, be cautious. Because I'm putting you on upset alert. Because Monmouth could come into your house and beat you guys. I'm not saying they will, but they're definitely capable of it and you can't deny that. So that does it for this episode of the Igloo. Tomorrow, I'm going to cover the opening slate of conference games on the women's side, and of course look ahead look ahead to what's coming up, including you know UConn visiting Georgia Tech, and of course the big headline coming from this entire weekend: a shocking injury to Paige Beckers. I'll cover that on the next episode of the Igloo coming up tomorrow. So until next time, this is Timmy Ice signing off from the Igloo. Thanks for tuning in. I'll catch y'all next time.